the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure um, to be with you today and to be, to be able to talk about the Bible together. My name is Lizzie, and I'm a member here at Belmont. I'm also a mum, and three days a week I work as a primary school teacher. So if you've been around Belmont in the last few weeks, you'll know that this sermon comes in the middle of a series of sermons about Romans. Um, We've been studying this book together and thinking about how it applies. And I can make a recommendation that if, like our family, you were unable to make the weekend away in Newquay, so you haven't heard the teaching from there, it's well worth catching up on. I've been catching up in the gym, walking back from the garage, and whilst cooking this week. And it was time well spent, so I recommend it to you. Andrew Rollerton, who wrote the book that we're using for this series, he is a massive fan of a mountain image, and so am I. There we go. I am a massive fan of a mountain image. Um, And here we are, Chris and I, on a mountain. It was a really good day. This is like the Romans 8 of mountain climbing days. The view at the top was crystal clear. It was good. It was really good. This is like the end of Simon's Romans 8 last week. God is for us. It's unbelievably amazing. And things look really, really good. If you can't see it because the projector's not working, it's me and Chris on top of a mountain on a crystal clear day. The reality together of living by faith can be somewhat more like mountain climbing like this. It's sleeting, we're in a cloud, and we've been there for the last hour. Sometimes climbing mountains means you are in a cloud. Sometimes living the Christian life means that you are living in the cloud of mystery. Romans 9, 10, and 11, where we're looking today, are certainly squarely in the territory of the cloud of mystery. And it can feel like a really, really tricky place to be. But Paul, as he works through his arguments in this mysterious place, he comes out ready to worship God. That is where we will end today. Worshipping. There's our mountain. We have just dropped off the top, the summit, Romans 8. We're in the cloud of mystery today. I think that Romans 9, 10, and 11 have got got two major things to teach us. Firstly, God is in sovereign control. And secondly, that we have a part to play in his plans for the world. Now, it can feel like these two things are completely opposed to each other. But even though masses of ink has been spilled on these chapters, 
And that ink can make it feel like they are not really chapters for ordinary Christians. The more I have read them, the more I have thought about them, the more I've come to see that this is part of a letter written for ordinary Christians in Rome, living out their life. Now this week it was half term and I have two small children. So some of my sermon preparation was done in the soft play. If you have never been to a soft play, deep study and soft play are not well matched. Soft plays are noisy and full of arguments and full of, oh, it's, it's just crazy, really. But as I sat there in the soft play, reading a book about Romans 9, firstly, I was like, this is completely ridiculous. So I texted Simon, being like, this is completely ridiculous. I'm reading about Romans in the soft play. But the more I read it and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I really wanted what Romans 9, 10, and 11 said to matter in my going to soft play life just as much as it mattered at my desk. Because actually, that was where I met a lot of people and lived a surprisingly large amount of my life this week. So whilst um, Paul's first hearers did not hear Romans in the soft play, because luckily for them it wasn't invented yet, They did hear it and work it out in their real lives in what they were really doing day to day. So let's pray and ask God to help us understand it. Lord God, we pray that we would see how you are in sovereign control as we read these words and that we would see our part to play in what you are doing as we read these words. Father, we pray that this would draw us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yes. A red, or Andrew Ollerton uses this imperfect image to describe the relationship between God being in sovereign control and us having a part to play. He asks you to imagine it like you're at the theatre. So when you're at the theatre, off stage, there is a director who is in charge. The director has a vision for the performance and a plan. But on stage, they're the actors who have their own part to play. They must do their work of putting on the play. And if I've thought about that image, I found it quite helpful to think about both God being in sovereign control and us having a part to play as working together rather than being in opposition. So... We're obviously not going to study the whole passage this morning. That would be completely ridiculous. But uh, we're going to jump into a bit in Romans 10 and really study that. But before we do that, I want us to look at this passage from Romans 9. Um, I want to just linger here briefly. I can't read it from the screen, so I'm going to need to read it from here. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. This is Romans 9, verse 1. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, 
the covenants, receiving the law, the temple worship, and the promises. There's the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God overall, forever praised. Amen. I want to draw your attention to this part of the passage, given the news headlines this week. The words at the start of this chapter clearly point out how highly Paul thinks of the people of Israel. How important he feels they are in what God is doing in our world. And I think, given the anti-Semitism we've seen in the news this week, it's really, really important that we are all clear. Paul believes there is no place for anti-Semitism in the Christian life. Paul is very clear about the specialness of the people of Israel and his heart to see them understand the gospel for themselves. In fact, one-fifth of the book of Romans includes arguments about how special the people of Israel are to God. I wonder if perhaps this passage encourages us to think about how we can be people who are prepared to challenge the anti-Semitism in the culture around us. Romans 11, it develops the arguments involving grafting in branches to an olive tree. And it points definitely to the importance and the continued importance of the people of Israel in the history of salvation. Now this is firmly in the territory of the cloud of mystery. It is mysterious what is God is doing with them and through Israel. But I believe that God is still at work in them and will be in the future. And I think that Paul ends chapter 11 with a most beautiful doxology to the glory of God, acknowledging both the mystery of what he is doing and the wonderfulness of what he is doing. Something, hopefully, to think about from the beginning of Romans 9. Perhaps you can fill in the gap, the rest of chapter 9 and 11, later on today. But now we're going to jump into Romans 10, verses 9 to 15. We'll start with 9 to 13, and then we'll go on to the second bit. So Romans, chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul starts here with a reminder of what salvation is going to be like. He's reminding us that salvation is by grace and grace alone. It is received by faith. Now you probably know that Roman culture was hierarchical, and that everything was either earned or given as a birthright. But the gospel is inclusive. The only requirement is faith. 
It doesn't take looking far beyond my front door or watching the news for long to realize that our world is marred by inequality and injustice. Salvation, the gospel, is for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus, which should, I think, challenge us as we pray for the world, where we can see the need of the proud to be humbled and the downtrodden lifted up. Jesus came for everyone, and salvation is received only by faith. It's not our DNA. We aren't born into salvation. Now, the arguments of the whole of Romans around the people of Israel, as I've already pointed out, are extremely dense and complex. The people of Israel in chapter 11 are shown to have a very special part in God's plans. However, it's clear they are special, but Paul doesn't want any believer to think that that places them above any of the others. Instead, Paul is pointing out an exclusive claim of Christianity. The exclusive claim is that Jesus is Lord and that everyone must renounce all other gods. Now, sometimes it's really easy, certainly for me, to see where other people need to renounce the gods in their lives. I can see where they are giving up things to follow something other than Jesus. I can see them sacrificing things for something other than Jesus. And I can think, you need to give that up to follow Jesus. But I wonder if actually this exclusive claim calls us to have a look at ourselves and have a think about whether we are creating gods in our lives that we sacrifice things to, spend time on, other than Jesus. Now, going to the gym is, without a doubt, a good thing. But it could become your God. Your mobile phone is probably a really good thing, but it has the most enormous capacity to absorb time in your life. And that absorption of time, I think, could make it a God. So as we read verse 12... I really think it challenges us to consider the exclusive claim of Jesus and his lordship in our lives. If we look, I know I'm going backwards through it, but if we go back to verse 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now this has puzzled me this week for quite a while, because it kind of began to sound like there were two steps that are required, and that maybe it wasn't the faith that was saving you, but that didn't make any sense, because the whole of rest of Romans said, it's by faith you are saved. And here it's saying, believing in your heart and declaring with your mouth, that sounds like two things. Hold on. Well, as it turns out, this is a special form of poetry, Hebrew poetry, called parallelism, which is hard to say. In parallelism, you have to hold together two clauses as meaning the same thing. 
So, I'm pretty sure this is like when I'm at school and I say the same thing twice to hope that the children might do, at least most of them, the thing I want them to do. So I might say, wash your hands and get ready for lunch. After you've washed your hands, please get your lunch boxes ready for lunch. I've not given them four instructions. I've really just given them one and given it twice to make my point. Pretty sure that that is how this poetic form is working. Believing with your heart and confessing with your mouth are not two separate things, but in the words of Tim Keller, they're two sides, I mean, they're two sides of the same coin. And justification and salvation are two sides of the same coin. Remember, we know from the whole of the way through Romans, it comes by faith and nothing else, salvation. For lots of us here this morning, your baptism is a time that you can look back on and talk about as a time of declaring that Jesus is Lord and renouncing other gods and doing that publicly was very helpful in moving forward in your life of faith. If you haven't been baptized and this is something you think you are ready for, please come and talk to me at the end or email Karen in the office this week and she'll be glad to give you some more information. So we've had to think about this idea of calling on the name of Jesus and how important it is that we do it by faith. We thought about the inclusive nature of the Christian faith and the exclusive claim of Jesus as the only God. And we thought about the fact that it's one thing to call on the name of Jesus. Having thought about this and God's sovereign control, we then need to think about what our role is. Not because we have to do it to be saved, but because we are saved, something we might want to do. So Paul goes on. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one on whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we're moving on to think about our responsibilities are calling out the name of Jesus, if you like. This can be a thing that makes us feel incredibly guilty. And I really don't want to do that. I really want to share with you, it's a pleasure and a joy to share Jesus' call with other people. When I read this passage, it actually made me smile a lot because um, just before half-term, my class and I were doing some persuasive writing. And in persuasive writing, you teach seven and eight-year-olds that a really good technique for persuasive writing is to use rhetorical questions. The questions that we've got in the text today are those ones you don't kind of answer out loud. They're those ones that make you think. And I've been trying to teach seven and eight-year-olds to use these in their persuasive writing. Paul is better than my seven and eight-year-olds. 
But I found myself imagining, we think that Phoebe was reading this letter to the Romans. I found myself imagining maybe Phoebe's a bit like me. She's a woman, you know, we've got some similarities. Maybe, maybe Phoebe's standing there with the, the Christians in Rome reading the letter to them. And she's saying, how can they call on the ones that they have not believed in? And all the Romans are like, well, they can't, they can't. They're sitting there thinking in their heads. And then, then Phoebe says, how can they believe in the one they've not heard? And all the people were like, well, well, they can't. And they're thinking this in their head. And then Phoebe says, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And they're all thinking, well, that would be impossible, Phoebe. How would they possibly manage that? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And at that point, I felt certain that some of those Roman Christians were like, me, 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 I want to do it. I want to tell the people. That's how I feel when I read this passage. And I hope many of you do too. It doesn't mean that works itself out in every moment of my life. But that is my feeling. I want people to hear. Maybe, however, you're thinking, well, Lizzie, you're standing at the front and you're clearly doing the preaching thing and I, therefore, do not have to do that this morning, so this is not really that relevant to me. I'm sorry, I don't think you can get out of it that easily. So I've discovered this week that the word here that's used for preaching is the same word that's used for herald, something that all of us can do to herald, to point out the good news of Jesus. We're all going to do that in different ways. We all have the chance to do this. So I told you that one of my roles is as a parent. And one of my very most important roles as a parent is to herald the good news, the gospel, to my children. I have heralded it to them from their very, very first moments. I have told them that Jesus loves them as I put them to bed at night. As I left Sam in his incubator in the hospital, I told him, Jesus loves you and I love you. I heralded the most important good news to him. Conversations are somewhat ongoing in the Playford household. There is a weekly conversation about why we prioritize going to church on a Sunday morning over and above any of the other wonderful things we could be doing on a Sunday morning. And we herald to them the good news in those conversations. I want to encourage you, if you are a parent, that this week I've had the strong sense of the importance of us heralding the good news to our children. I also want us to think about the people who were heralds to us And this week, I've been able to give thanks for a really wonderful teacher at school. Her name was Mrs. Lyburn. And she taught me when I was in primary three. And then when I was in primary five and primary six, she ran a club in our school where my friends and I got to hear the stories of Jesus, sing the songs, learn the memory verses, have a really good time, and respond to the significance of Jesus. She was a faithful, faithful, she actually remains a faithful herald of the gospel where she lives now. And she told some of my best friends about Jesus who had no other way of finding out. 
I could tell you about a guy called Michael, a young man in my church in Edinburgh, who faithfully worked at Sunday school each week and heralded the gospel to me and my friends there. I know that many of my friends from that time, we continue to love Jesus and serve him and encourage one another and Michael as we live our lives for Jesus. I encourage you to take a moment and give thanks for the people who were heralds in your life. If you've got the chance, why don't you drop them an email, a Facebook message, you know, an old school actual letter to say thank you for their role and being a herald in your life. Sometimes we get to herald the good news into people's lives in really unexpected ways. So this week I was thinking about the time when Sam was in the hospital, in the incubator. One of my friends from school, a TA, came to visit us there. She was desperate to meet Sam. Absolutely desperate. And she came to visit us one, I think it was a Thursday. Hadn't been the easiest day. The news about Sam's health had not been the easiest to take. But Pam came anyway. And as we sat in the NICU and I was telling her about some of the challenges, Pam goes, how can you still trust God? How can you still believe that he is in charge when all of this stuff has happened? Now, in my head, what honestly went through my head was, oh, seriously, God, she's going to ask me here? She's going to ask me now? This day of all days? And God was like, yes, so you better answer. So we sat in the NICU, and we talked about the fact that, yeah, I did still believe that Jesus was in charge. I did still believe that he had a plan for Sam's life despite all the challenges. And Pam said, wow, that really is amazing. I, th I think I might need to know a bit more about God. And I was like, I think it might be time to do an alpha course, Pam. Yeah, I do think it might be, she said. There are lots of different ways that we get to be heralds in other people's lives. And sometimes it's about the day-to-day -day everything, the parenting-type relationships. Sometimes it's about the, the heralds who've been in your lives. But sometimes it's about some truly extraordinary moments when someone asks you a question. So we all have a role in heralding. We all have the opportunity to point out to other people that they can call on the name of, the Jesus, name of Jesus. But how can we make sure our motivation is correct? If you remember back to the passage I read you at the beginning, it was Romans 9, 1 to 5. And in that, Paul talks about his immense love for the people of Israel. His motivation of his love for those people makes him absolutely desperate to teach the people of Israel how they can call on the name of Jesus. I wonder if you have a deep heart to share the gospel, to share the good news of um, Jesus with certain people. When I was a young adult, I spent much of my time sharing the good news with children and young people in Scotland where we lived. And I am still really passionate that the gospel is shared with children and young people in Scotland. This is not something that I still get to actually be involved in myself, except I do, because 
SU Scotland, the charity that I used to work a lot with, they'll send me an email each day telling me about a different bit of their ministry and how I can be praying. And they give me the opportunity to contribute financially to their work. I really, really love that place. I love those people. And that motivates me very strongly to share the gospel with them. I find myself very passionate about sharing the gospel in a very obscure country of the world because one of my university friends worked there for the World Bank and he shared with us some of the challenges in that place. That has motivated me to really, really love that place and that country. I find out more about it and it can influence my prayers. It's incredibly unlikely I will ever go there and share the gospel but I can still be part of sharing the gospel there. I wonder, though, where you feel driven by love to share the gospel. Perhaps you feel driven by love for another country to share the gospel there. Maybe it's a place where you or your parents grew up and you feel an amazing heart for the gospel there. That is definitely a thing from God. Learn about that place Find out about what's going on and how you can pray for them. Perhaps you really feel a heart for the homeless people in Exeter. You really feel motivated by love for those people to share the gospel with them. Perhaps find out about how you can be praying for ministry there. Perhaps find out how you can be giving. Your motivation of love will enable you to share the gospel in that community. Perhaps you're thinking... That's not an experience I've ever had. I'm not passionate about sharing the gospel anywhere. Well, I think you could ask God to make you passionate about sharing the gospel somewhere. I've been praying that God will make me as passionate about sharing the gospel in Exeter as I was in Edinburgh. One final point. It won't have escaped your notice at the end of our passage today that, um, that Paul ends up talking about people's beautiful feet. Now, beautiful feet are maybe not something, that two words that you necessarily associate together. So what's going on with these beautiful feet? What's the significance of them? If you remember back when Queen Elizabeth died and Prince Charles rose to the throne, we saw the heralds at work in our land. Now, our heralds, they really have some great outfits, don't they? Couldn't find the photo of their feet, but their shoes even are fancy. Now, I think our fancy uh, British heralds have maybe slightly obscured for us the role of the heralds in the Bible. In the Roman Empire, the heralds had to run from place to place, taking taking the good news with them. They didn't have any trainers, they didn't have any fancy wicking running tops, and they had to share their roots with the animals who left behind an unpleasant trail. So when the heralds arrived, having run from place to place, their feet would have looked absolutely horrible. But... With no other way to get a message from one place to another, it would have been really exciting to see the heralds. I'm going to move that photo on because it's a horrible photo. Oh, two. There we go. 
With no other way to get a message from place to place, the arrival of the Herald would have been really exciting. Paul quotes Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news in chapter 15. And he uses this image again in his book to the Ephesians. And I think this should get us thinking about the importance and the significance of our feet. I wonder where your feet will carry you this week. And I wonder what difference it would make to know that you are a herald of the most beautiful good news in that place. So this week, I I had to think about my week, what's coming up. I thought about the time that I'll spend with my children, heralding the good news to them, perhaps through the bedtime routine, perhaps through ensuring that we carve out time to read the Bible together. Then I thought about being at work. These are commonly my work shoes. Probably do the polish before tomorrow. But these are commonly my work shoes. And I thought about being a herald for the good news at work this week. I thought about the fact that I might perhaps get the chance to say, yeah, I did a bit of preaching in half term. I, t- I talked about Jesus at church. And even that conversation might herald the good news about Jesus. It might be the offer to pray for someone at work in a tricky spot. But these screws, they could be part of me heralding good news this week. I thought about the fact that I want to go to the gym this week. Hopefully, that's the plan. Actually, never ever talk to anyone at the gym if I can possibly avoid it. And that made me think, it's very hard to be a herald to a good news if you're not actually talking to anyone. I'm going to stand at the school gate in the rain again, no doubt. I wonder how in the rain, standing at the school gate, with the other mums and dads, could be a herald to the good news there. I wonder in my listening to my friends, in my time spent with them and my choices to include them, I wonder if that could herald the good news. And I thought about sitting on my sofa in my comfy slippers. And I thought about whether my feet could herald good news there. But I figured it would be much easier on my sofa and my slippers to text my friend and herald good news in her life of pain by remembering her, including her, and pointing out that Jesus is still in charge. I don't think my feet are going to get that grubby this week unless I leave my shoes here at church, which would definitely be a mistake. But I definitely think they have the capacity to be beautiful feet, bringing good news to the people that I'm going to come into contact with this week. If you know me around Belmont, you know that I am passionate about sharing the gospel with other people. That's why I'm involved in the Alpha Course And I will always remind you to pick people and to pray for them. And let yourself see God at work in their lives as you herald the gospel to them. Over the last, I think, six years, the people I have been praying for, two of them have come to the Alpha Course. Conversations are ongoing about choices to follow Jesus and the importance of Jesus. I've seen some people, one of the people I pray for, um, engage with church in a different way. 
And the other people I've been praying for, nothing yet. But I still want to herald the good news in their lives. So I suggest you have a read through the rest of Romans 9, 10, and 11 this week. But remember, it applies in the soft play as much as at the um, desk where you're studying it. You'll see that God is like the director. He's in sovereign control over the whole of our world. And you'll see that we are, are a bit like actors on a stage with the responsibility to share the gospel with the world as heralds. There is, without a doubt, great mystery in this. But I'm actually really glad there's great mystery around God. Because otherwise, in all my pride and arrogance, I might be tempted to think that I could actually understand God. The cloud of mystery makes me know that he is really great. Paul ends chapter 11, called to worship, the God who says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He writes these beautiful pieces of poetry. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.